Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. I went to see a man who had denounced his mother at the age of just 17, Zhang Hongbing, and I came back to Beijing and I wrote the 1,000, 1,500 words that you get generally as a news writer. But then I just thought there was just something much more complicated there, not just about his story, but really about what the Cultural Revolution meant to people today and how they live with it. The Chinese Cultural Revolution was launched by Chairman Mao in 1966 and lasted a whole decade until his death. It aimed to purify China of perceived bourgeois elements and reinforce hardline communist ideology. Characterized by mass mobilization, political purges, and cultural upheaval, it led to widespread chaos, persecution, and unimaginable brutality. The era left a huge impact on China's socio-political landscape, but despite its seismic impact, it's not that well understood by many Westerners. Today, I'm speaking with Tanya Brannigan. Tanya spent seven years as The Guardian's China correspondent, and she's currently The Guardian's foreign leader writer. She's written for a number of prestigious publications, including The Washington Post and The Australian. Tanya is also the author of a recent nonfiction book called Red Memory, which explores the stories that have emerged about the Cultural Revolution and its lingering impact on contemporary China. I read and reviewed it earlier this year, and you can check that out on my Instagram. I was absolutely blown away by the book. Red Memory dives at the emotional heart of the Cultural Revolution through its polyphonic approach of letting a variety of voices speak about this horrific event. The very personal nature of these stories and their long-lasting effects make for very powerful reading. In this episode, Tanya and I go deep into her book, Red Memory, the process she went through in writing and researching the text. And for those of you who don't know all that much about the Cultural Revolution, don't panic. Tanya does an incredible job at the beginning of the interview of covering the basics while also getting into the intricacies of the relevant political history. I thoroughly recommend this book for anyone looking to improve their knowledge of China, especially how this contemporary society is still haunted by many ghosts of the Cultural Revolution. The paperback version is coming out next week, so look out for that. Tanya Brannigan, hello. We're discussing today your book, Red Memory. And before we discuss the book, we may have to start by maybe setting the stage a little bit, the historical setting for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with Mao, with the Cultural Revolution. So how would we introduce that subject and describe the Cultural Revolution to someone who's unfamiliar with it? Well, this was very much the challenge for me writing the book, that the Cultural Revolution is a decade long. Mm -hmm. It's chaotic. It's all-encompassing. It keeps changing direction. And for all of those reasons, it can be very hard to summarize or understand and was even for people at the time. Mm -hmm. 
So it was 10 years of, first of all, chaos, political violence, and then a more stagnant but still pretty deadly, albeit more bureaucratized deadliness, I suppose you'd say, era, in which overall you saw around 2 million people die, some of them executed or killed in mass killings, beaten to death even, others driven to suicide. You also saw tens of millions of people hounded. And it extended from the very top leaders in Beijing. Mm -hmm. So both of Mao's Mm -hmm. heirs apparent would die in this violence, Mm -hmm. right through to farmers in remote provinces. It really encompassed everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think what was perhaps most devastating about it was that many times it was the violence and the abuse at this very personal level, people turning upon their workmates, upon their friends, even upon their spouses or their parents. And that's really what sort of tore apart Mm -hmm. the fabric of the country. In essence, the Cultural Revolution is really about Mao reasserting his authority. So the Communist Party came to power in 1949. Mao already very much the dominant figure. He had, by this point in the 60s, built up this immense personality cult. The party had already been through purges. But what happened was that in 1958, he launched the Great Leap Forward, which was this hubristic attempt to overhaul the country's industry and agriculture, collectivizing farmland, and really transform China into the standard bearer for international communism and put it right at the front of international affairs. It was a disastrous plan and it went so badly wrong that probably 40 million people died, perhaps more, we think. And this led to it being reined in by more pragmatic figures within the party. And Mao was deeply angered. He was thinking, of course, about his own power and he wanted to wipe out any opposition. He was thinking about his legacy looking at the Soviet Union, where Khrushchev had turned upon Stalin after his death. But also, I think he really had this vision of how if only people believed enough, because that's the essence of Maoism, that belief can create this new world. Mm -hmm. If only people believed enough and were pure enough that they would have managed to do this incredible feat. And so he really felt that he had to sort of remake the souls of Chinese people and of people within the party. That's why he launched the Great Leap Forward, and that's why he was so bitter when it ended, and that's what led to the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. And so in the Cultural Revolution, he's trying to remove opposition, but unlike previous purges, he's always gone through the party structures. This time, he has to turn outside, and so he turns to the masses and to young people, in many cases really children, 13, 14 years old sometimes, and they become what we would sort of regard as the shock troops, really, Mm -hmm. of the Cultural Revolution. They are out on the streets, they are denouncing their teachers, beating, in some cases, killing their teachers and their lecturers at universities. They are changing street names. Mm-hmm. They are attacking passers-by for what they wear, mm-hmm. cutting up trousers that are seen as too tight, mm-hmm. shaving their heads if they're seen as having fashionable hairstyles. And very quickly, this violence ripples out and it becomes this mass movement, a sort of a shutting out of the world in which foreign influences are shut out, immense violence being enacted through the ranks, clearly with Mao's approval. And there's this period almost of anarchy And then after a few years, even Mao has enough of this and the young people are dispatched off to the countryside to this period of sort of grim rural poverty. But 
the rigid political controls, these shifting political currents, mm -hmm. and the violence, of course, all of that still goes on and many more people die. And it's not until Mao dies himself in 1976 that finally the Cultural Revolution comes to an end. Mm. The one constant in all of this, it seems, is fervent loyalty to Mao is the ultimate currency in society. Uh, it's really the only mm. currency, essentially, uh, your political passion, which is measured mm. by your devotion to Mao. And of mm. course, in some cases, because Mao himself was so changeable and so jealous mm. of any rival influence that the only way to succeed or to survive or to advance was really by showing your dedication to Mao. But of course, he might find, as in, in the case of his second sort of heir apparent, Lin Biao, just being sycophantic in itself then made him suspicious <laughs> because, of course, you must be there ambitious. There was no right answer. There was no right answer, no. Let's uh, rewind to the origins of the book and your career. You spent seven years as the Guardian's China correspondent between 2008 and 2015. What was the path that led you to becoming a journalist and uh, ending up in China and, and covering that country? I was always very interested in current affairs and in history growing up. It never occurred to me that I would become a journalist. I just didn't know any journalists. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of it as a path. And then when I was about 16, 17, I got obsessed with music as people do mm -hmm. and started writing for the music press. And that was my way in. Oh. And I knew quite quickly that I wouldn't want to do that mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. But that was when I realized it was sort of the light bulb moment mm -hmm. that I realized I could be a journalist and could follow my interests in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I worked through university and I received a bursary from the Scott Trust, which owns The Guardian, mm -hmm. uh, to do a journalism course afterwards. Mm -hmm. Did a couple of years on a regional paper and ended up at The Guardian, which was the paper I'd always loved. Mm -hmm. I loved reporting on domestic news, but I always felt that China was the story mm -hmm. of our time. And I still feel that. And so I petitioned The Guardian to send me out there. And in the end, in Olympic year 2008, mm -hmm. they dispatched me out there. In the UK, there's always been such a strong focus on the US. Mm -hmm. And then for historical reasons, also the Middle East, and it's often crowded out mm -hmm. other interests. Mm -hmm. But I sort of think generally the lack of knowledge of China at that point was really striking. Mm -hmm in the UK, just sort of the lack of awareness of it, I suppose. And I just thought that this was this extraordinary story of mm -hmm. 1.3, now 1.4 billion people going through this incredible transformation. I mean, in the time I was there, it flipped from being a, a rural to an urban nation, mm -hmm. you know, finally over 50% of the population because the speed of that urbanization, all the great transformations of societies that we've seen elsewhere have happened in China in the blink of an eye, really. And so the chance to go out there and witness that was the, the one thing I really wanted. I was never invested in being a foreign correspondent. Mm -hmm. Particularly, I, I wanted to go to China because I just thought and still believe that it was an extraordinary story. Mm -hmm. And it's an extraordinary place. I mean, the richness mm -hmm. of its history, mm -hmm. the diversity, it's just fabulous. And, and we know so little about, about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that in a little bit, about why we know so little about it. But at what point during that stint in China did you then first develop the idea of writing a book on the Cultural Revolution? What was it that originally attracted you to that subject and made you want to write a book? I was quite anti the idea of writing a book generally, oh, I have right. to say, okay. just because it was an incredibly busy beat, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And there was so much to write about. Mm -hmm. And I have always believed and still do that 
journalism is really important and valid in its own right. And I think people sometimes still get a bit hung up on thinking it has to be Mm -hmm. between paper covers on a shelf Mm -hmm. to have Mm -hmm. some sort of greater meaning or gravitas or validity. But I think the work that journalists do day in and day out Mm -hmm. is extraordinary. And I was also just incredibly busy because it was this huge country changing at breakneck speed. So just Mm -hmm. keeping up with the daily news Mm -hmm. felt like enough of a task in itself. And certainly the idea of looking back to history Mm -hmm. seemed quite perverse Mm -hmm. in a country that was just charging headlong Mm -hmm. into its future. But really, I was unable to escape, I suppose, the Cultural Revolution, Mm -hmm. I felt. In what sense? Was it it something lurking in in every interaction or the silent thing that you're not saying its name? I mean, I was always aware of the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. I knew the basics. I knew something about it. And then I happened to go for lunch one day mm-hmm. with an analyst I knew, and we were just exchanging the usual sort of economic chat, political mm-hmm. gossip. And then over coffee, he started to talk about this trip that he had made with his wife a few years before to a village outside Beijing. Mm-hmm. Her father had been held by Red Guards there in mm-hmm. the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. And had escaped, but mm-hmm. like many Red Guard victims, had ended up killing himself, not seeing another way out. Mm-hmm. And so they had gone to try and recover his body after all these years. Mm-hmm. And when they got up there, actually, the farmers were quite sympathetic and they mm-hmm. did remember his father-in-law. Mm-hmm. But when they asked for help in finding the body, the farmers just sort of said, well, you know, what's the point? How should we know? Because there were so many bodies there. Mm-hmm. They said, how were they supposed to know mm-hmm. which one of those belonged to his father-in-law? Mm-hmm. And there was something about that I couldn't leave behind. I think Mm -hmm. the fact it was so immediate that it just came up so casually almost, Mm -hmm. the fact that people would say, well, why would you bother looking for a body? Because there are so many of Mm -hmm. them. It was Mm -hmm. commonplace in that sense. And of course, the fact that here was someone I knew who was still living with this loss. So Carol had never known Mm -hmm. her father, really. She was just a few months old when he died. And so... She had spent her life with this immense sense of absence, a space that she said, you know, even as a parent herself, she just couldn't imagine what it would be like, what it would mean to have a father. And I began to realize as I was speaking to other people that this kind of absence really stood for a much wider absence within China itself, which was the Cultural Revolution that these years were missing Mm -hmm. in some sense. Although there's so much within living memory, Mm -hmm. they're so close to us, relatively speaking. It was yesterday. And so many people have lived through it, but it was so little discussed. It was discussed only glancingly. And yet, Mm -hmm. as I was covering all these other stories, Mm -hmm. as I got back to the news, Mm -hmm. it would just keep coming up time Mm -hmm. and again. So if you want to understand why the economy is the way it is in China. You have to understand the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. If you want to understand the way that politics works, you have Mm -hmm. to understand the Cultural Revolution. You'd go and talk to perhaps a film director and they'd talk about the way that they'd been fundamentally shaped by having this 10 years where they were cut off from any outside influences or any Mm -hmm. diversity within Mm -hmm. Chinese culture itself, Mm -hmm. because you just, as a joke had it, it was 800 million people watching eight model operas, you know, (laughs) very, very limited cultural repertoire. Mm -hmm. And they said, but you you know, that was the thing that formed me, this kind of absence and then this explosion of culture. So every aspect of life really came back to the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. And yet it was so little discussed. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that really struck me was that 
as I was thinking about this, these voices were beginning to emerge, that mm -hmm. people were starting to come forward and talk about that era. And unlike- So you mean in a public sense or in a personal sense with you? I mean, I was finding it was coming up in conversations, mm -hmm. but also that people were starting to write about it mm -hmm. a little bit on the internet, that people were coming forward to apologize for what mm -hmm. they had done. And this was a really interesting shift mm -hmm. that in the initial aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, you had this outburst of people talking about what had happened to them and how they'd suffered very often, but there was much less on the whole, about what they had done to other people. And I think for a number of reasons, I think- It was think, all Mao's fault in a way. Exactly, uh, yes. Yeah. Or they were talking about how badly they were treated. Mm -hmm. And I think for a number of reasons to do probably partly with people's age mm -hmm. and having slightly a different perspective mm -hmm. on life, but also that it was a point where independent media had clawed out something more of a space in China. Mm -hmm. Civil society was clawing out this space for activism mm -hmm. and for scholarly work. And we were seeing, although the internet was still very heavily censored mm -hmm. from our perspective, mm -hmm. it was less so than it is now. Mm -hmm. So we were seeing these voices emerge. And it felt as if there was really this outpouring mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. of voices. Certainly not the majority. Mm -hmm. It was still quite a quixotic thing to mm -hmm. do. Lots mm -hmm. of people didn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But at last, as if that silence was being challenged. Mm -hmm. And then I think the third thing really was a conversation, which at this point, I still thought this was really something that I would write about in news articles mm -hmm. rather than books. But I went to see a man who had denounced his mother at the age of just 17, mm -hmm. Zhang Hongbing. And I had a very long meeting with him and I came back to Beijing and I wrote the 1,000, 1,500 words that you get mm -hmm. generally as a news writer. But then I just thought there was just something much more complicated there and something deeper that I couldn't really encompass mm -hmm. in that article, that there was more that I wanted to or needed to explore. Not just about his story, but really about what the Cultural Revolution meant to people today and how they live with it. And all of those things together really were what brought me to the point of writing the book. You've used the word voices a lot in your answer, and the approach in your book is polyphonic. A lot of voices, individual voices, experiences, narrating their experience of the Cultural Revolution what led you to that very specific approach as opposed to, say, a broad policy overview, a historical view of the Cultural Revolution? Why did you want to dive in specifically at individual level? There are some great history books mm -hmm. on the Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. which I hope people will seek out and they can find mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. uh, the notes at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in writing a history mm -hmm. of the Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. although Red Memory does explain what happened mm -hmm. and, and why and so forth. Mm -hmm. I was interested in what the Cultural Revolution means to people now mm -hmm. and how it's shaped China and how people are still living with it. For me, that was all about people, mm -hmm. about their interpretations, mm -hmm. about what it means to them now. But I also felt that the Cultural Revolution itself is so confusing, so multifaceted, and so contradictory mm. that I really had to reflect that mm. in the writing mm. of the book itself. And I didn't want to smooth it out. Mm. I didn't want to make it 
too easily understandable, I suppose, mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. sense. I wanted it to be nuanced, complex, mm-hmm. to reflect the fact that people have these wildly differing and clashing interpretations of it, mm-hmm. and that most of those aren't right mm-hmm. or wrong, that there are elements of truth mm-hmm. within most, if not all of those stories. And I felt to be true to the nature of the events themselves, I needed the profusion of voices, Mm -hmm. but also the fact that people are arguing with each other, because that Mm -hmm. was something that became very clear to me as I pursued it, that I'd perhaps naively had this idea of, you know, there's authority and then then there are the people who want to talk about Mm -hmm. it, or that there's the official version and there's the people Mm -hmm. who think we should remember it because it's so terrible Mm -hmm. and it must never happen again. And Mm -hmm. then there's the people who are actually Mm -hmm. quite nostalgic and would like to return. And then actually, as I talked to more and more people, I realized it was even more complex than that, which was that everybody was really arguing with each other about Mm. what it meant and why it mattered. And Mm. even people who wanted to keep the memory alive because it was so terrible would still then have wildly differing conclusions about what had actually happened Mm. and what it all meant and what that meant for China today. Mm. Obviously, technically, I have to say I would not recommend writing a book with multiple (laughs) voices because it does make it much harder. There is no one unifying voice. And so Mm -hmm. making it work as a book was much more challenging technically, Mm -hmm. but I felt it was the only thing that would be true to the subject. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that all this debate, internal debate at individual level, do you think that is elevating at any stage towards a wider political debate? Or is there a clear ceiling in the Chinese political sphere of uh, the level at which this thing is discussed and debated? There's always been a very clear ceiling. Mm -hmm. And I'd say the ceiling's lowered, Mm -hmm. rather. So there's Mm -hmm. there's much, much less space now. Mm -hmm. One of the things, as I said, when I started researching this was that more people were coming forward. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of scholars researching unofficially. I mean, there still are. There's some remarkable, brave people out there. And I'd really recommend um, Sparks, which Mm. is a book that came out from Ian Johnson this year, specifically on historians, unofficial historians Mm -hmm. researching modern China, for people who want to know more about that. But there have always been these currents, but the tendency really since the end of the Cultural Revolution Mm. has been to restrict more and more Mm. discussion of what's going on. And I think, you know, when you think back to that initial outburst after the Cultural Revolution, it really served a purpose Mm. for those in power. Firstly, I mean, it was cathartic. People Mm -hmm. had been through this horrendous decade Mm -hmm. and they needed to express that in some way. Secondly, of course, in terms of the pure power politics, although people had managed, Deng Xiaoping and those around him had managed to see off the gang of four Mm -hmm. after Mao's death, the Mm -hmm. sort of the intellectuals who'd been at the forefront of the Cultural Revolution, there was still a profound uncertainty about which way China had gone. So they Mm -hmm. really needed to say, this was a terrible thing Mm -hmm. and it's over. We're not going back there. And then thirdly, of course, because the country was turning towards the market and really turning its back on orthodox Maoism in that sense, they needed to justify that. Mm -hmm. And so again, talking about how terrible everything was, Mm -hmm. was a way to say, well, of course, we're shifting in this totally different direction, because what else can we do? Mm. So for all of those reasons, it was really important to draw that line. Mm. But even at the point where Deng Xiaoping orders people to draw up this official history, Mm. he says, well, you know, the purpose is to unite people and get them to look ahead. Mm. So it's not about saying never again. It's Mm. not about saying, let's remember this and remember its lessons. Mm. It's about saying, Let's just accept it was a bad idea and now we all move on. Did he miss an opportunity, do you think? A little bit like Khrushchev de Russia. Did Deng miss an opportunity to 
de-Maoize China, in your opinion? Or, or do you think the, the course he suggested was the right one, ultimately? Well, I suppose right for whom would be <laughs> one question. Um, and then I don't know how the party state would have held together if you'd attempted to shun Mao. I'm not sure you could have done mm. from their point of view. Mm. And I also think that although political survival was at the forefront of their minds, was mm -hmm. their primary motive, I think there was also perhaps a genuine fear mm -hmm. of what would happen if you had this broader reckoning mm -hmm. and allowed everybody to talk about what had happened. Mm -hmm. Because it's very easy from our sort of perspective to think, well, this is all history and surely people, mm -hmm. you know, we have the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in mm -hmm. South Africa, mm -hmm. people can sit down and talk about this. These are really painful, traumatic, difficult mm -hmm. processes. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for people to sit down next to the person Mm -hmm. who brutally murdered mm -hmm. their father mm -hmm. and listen to them talk about how they brutally murdered their father and then get up and mm -hmm. walk away. Mm -hmm. So it was always easier for the party just mm -hmm. to kind of draw mm -hmm. a line about this. You know, you had the token show trials of the mm -hmm. gang of four. Mm -hmm. You said, it's all over. It's all a terrible idea. Let's just move on. I, I think that was a profound mistake in so many ways that mm -hmm. has sort of dearly cost mm -hmm. China because it was a collective trauma and you need a kind of collective reckoning for that. Right. But I think from their perspective, they probably felt both politically and socially mm -hmm. that there was no alternative to move on. So as time went on, mm -hmm. what's really striking is that the authorities became more and more anxious mm -hmm. about people talking about this. For example, they put out edicts saying mm -hmm. uh, that you shouldn't be publishing handbooks on the Cultural Revolution mm -hmm. and so forth to publishing houses. Mm -hmm. So there's a real clamping down on what can be published. Mm -hmm. There's much more pressure on scholars over mm -hmm. what they're researching and mm -hmm. what they're covering. Now, people did find amazing ways around this, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, they so always in, do. <laughs> in the case of one scholar, for example, he was told that he couldn't teach a course on the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so he instead won approval for a course which was called Chinese Culture 1966 to 76, <laughs> which of course are the dates of the Cultural Revolution, as anybody in China would know. Mm -hmm. So people found mm -hmm. ways around this. But I think what the authorities increasingly felt is that anything which harks back to the problems of communist control mm -hmm. is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Partly because the Cultural Revolution itself, mm -hmm. and then, of course, the crackdown on pro-democracy protesters, mm -hmm. the protests which began in Tiananmen Square in 1989, the brutal massacre which followed, that really demolished the idea that the Communist Party was serving the people. Mm -hmm. And so it had to have a new way of legitimizing itself. Mm -hmm. And that was both economic well-being, mm -hmm. uh, but also this new narrative mm -hmm. or renewed narrative about mm -hmm. how the Communist Party had saved China from humiliation at the hands of mm -hmm. foreign powers and mm -hmm. brought it to greatness again. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a lot of truth mm -hmm. in that because mm -hmm. the British with the Opium Wars, mm -hmm. so many others, the very brutal Japanese occupation, mm -hmm. that is a narrative that resonates because mm -hmm. it's rooted in, in the truth. Mm -hmm. But it's also a very handy Mm -hmm. narrative, because in focusing on that, you, you kind of quickly elide all the, or gloss over all, all the, the things bits. that sort of the <laughs> difficult things mm -hmm. that happened mm -hmm. under the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And so you don't talk about the Great Leap Forward. You mm -hmm. don't talk about the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. You certainly, certainly don't talk about 1989. Mm -hmm. So they fix 
people's ideas on this alternative narrative and that's become the roots of it. And the more you do that, the more then you need to ensure that mm. the difficult parts of mm. history mm. are airbrushed out. Mm. A lot of people have said as well that it's rooted in this idea that really Russia had Lenin and Stalin. Mm -hmm. So you could say, well, it was all going so well until Stalin came mm. along. With Mao, you only have one figure and mm. therefore... Once you turn upon Mao, then mm. you're really yeah, undercutting the, the very foundations yeah. of the party. But also, I think a much more fundamental issue, I think, which is really that if you allow people to judge the party mm. at any point in its history, why aren't they allowed to judge the party now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that has felt very dangerous to mm -hmm. those in authority, but mm -hmm. certainly particularly since Xi Jinping came along, he mm -hmm. has had more awareness of history really than anybody since Mao. And so the drive for patriotic education, mm -hmm. the promotion of this narrative of the return to national greatness mm -hmm. and the condemnation of what he's described as historical nihilism mm -hmm. all ramp up to the point where the very first thing he does, the very first public act when he becomes leader of the country is to take his colleagues in the Politburo Standing Committee mm -hmm. down to the National Museum of China mm -hmm. to see this exhibition that's all about the great national rejuvenation mm -hmm. under the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. He then, as I said, condemns historical nihilism as an existential threat to the party mm -hmm. on a par with things like Western democracy. Mm -hmm. More recently, I mean, there's even a historical nihilism hotline mm -hmm. now, so you can call up Gosh. and inform the authorities mm -hmm. that somebody you know is committing an act of historical nihilism. Mm -hmm. So we've really really seen this focusing in and, and sort of doubling down on the control of history under his watch. Interesting, because he, in fact, was a victim of the Cultural Revolution, like millions of others. Tell us a little bit about his experience of the Cultural Revolution and how it might have shaped him in the kind of leader he is now pursuing these kind of policies. This is what's so extraordinary. I mean, as you say, he had a, a terrible time. His father was a very senior figure, a revered revolutionary. He'd actually fallen from Mao's favor already just before the Cultural Revolution. But then that became much worse when the Cultural Revolution began. The persecution of the family was so intense that Xi's half-sister would end up killing herself mm -hmm. under the pressure. She mm -hmm. himself was denounced at rallies. We're told mm -hmm. his mother even had to denounce him at one point, was mm -hmm. pressured to denounce him. Mm -hmm. And in the end, when he was sent down to the countryside, mm -hmm. along with so many others, he recalled that he was laughing on the train when others were crying because mm -hmm. he just thought, well, how can it be worse? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even know if I'll live or die in Beijing, essentially. Mm -hmm. So he goes off to the countryside, but it's a very brutal existence. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds almost quite bucolic from sort of our point of view. And, and for some people, there was a sort of initial idealism that maybe will transform the mm -hmm. countryside. But the reality was really that they were going back a century mm -hmm. in living standards. They were struggling to survive. They were city kids. They knew mm -hmm. nothing about farming. Mm -hmm. It was grim circumstances. They had none of their privileges. Mm -hmm. In the early days, I mean, he and the locals could barely even understand each other. Mm -hmm. So it must have been an incredibly bitter, mm -hmm. lonely existence. Mm -hmm. And yet he has managed to turn this very bitter period mm -hmm. into really his creation myth. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's the one part of the Cultural Revolution that state media 
will really talk about. They mm-hmm. detach it from its roots. They don't talk about why mm-hmm. he was down there. Mm-hmm. But they talk about the fact, you know, look, he labored so hard. Mm-hmm. He's sort of described about it as really where he learned to be a man. You know, he grew up, he became tough. And so it sends this message that he's tough, he's resilient. He knows what it's like for ordinary people, which of course is true. I mean, again, he does have some understanding of what it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. to live that brutal basic existence in mm-hmm. a way that very few Western leaders mm-hmm. could imagine life at mm-hmm. the bottom of society. So these are very potent messages. Mm-hmm. And and it's sort of it's this story of striving, overcoming, of looking after the people in his village and helping to bring it on just as he's now helping to bring mm-hmm. China on. So it's a very powerful part of his story, but it's also so striking that he should celebrate this. Mm-hmm. And then politically, I think what's fascinating is that his father and mm-hmm. the other party elders who were restored after Mao's death they really set out to try and ensure that this could never happen again, that you mm-hmm. could never have a strong man at the mm-hmm. top mm-hmm. running riot. Mm-hmm. And so they tried to create a collectivized mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. They introduced norms around mm-hmm. things like term limits. Mm-hmm. Xi Jinping has swept <laughs> all of that it. away. Mm-hmm. He is there indefinitely, no mm-hmm. term limits for him. Mm-hmm. He has centralized power mm-hmm. in a manner that nobody thought possible mm-hmm. really perhaps. And so the lesson his father took Mm -hmm. was obviously that you needed to cage power. Mm -hmm. The lesson that she seems to have taken is that you need to monopolize Mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, who could blame Mm -hmm. somebody who'd grown up through that era? If Mm -hmm. you're not in charge, Mm -hmm. see what happens and Mm -hmm. see what could happen to you. Perhaps it's not entirely surprising. Now, it's worth saying for all the parallels, he does this in a very different way to Mao. You know, Mao relished disorder. That mm-hmm. was very clear that yeah. he loved the chaos. Mm-hmm. She is very much somebody who believes in order and discipline mm-hmm. and he works through party structures. Mm-hmm. But certainly there are plenty of people in China who've seen parallels in his grasp upon power, mm-hmm. in the sort of embryonic personality cult that's emerged mm-hmm. with school books talking about Grandpa mm-hmm. Xi and so forth. Mm-hmm. So there are certainly echoes there. I want to talk a little bit about the research and the sources that you uh, were using to write this book. Talking to individuals about their memory of this very traumatic event, that must have required some unusual approaches in, in dealing with people. I mean, it's one thing to write about, you know, the growing infrastructure of China and building airports and so on. Talking to someone about the, the, their mother denouncing them, it must be quite another. What, what were some of the big obstacles you found or how did you adapt your journalistic method to hear these stories? How did you adjust your your way of working? All of the people in Red Memory are people who had chosen Mm -hmm. to keep the memory of the Cultural Revolution alive in some way. Mm -hmm. That's really what unites them. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the sort of the unrepentant Maoist, Mm -hmm. it's very much because he thinks that the best hope for China's future is Mm -hmm. to return to those days, Mm -hmm. essentially. For other people, it's about dealing with their guilt, Mm -hmm. like the man who turned upon his mother or the people uh, who denounced Mm -hmm. their teacher who was Mm -hmm. then killed. All of them had in a sense, made their stories public Mm -hmm. to some degree Mm -hmm. or another. Mm -hmm. That was what interested me Mm -hmm. about them. But also it meant that I wasn't trying to persuade people Mm -hmm. who weren't willing to talk, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Some people didn't necessarily want to talk to Mm -hmm. a a foreigner because Mm -hmm. they felt it was sort of Chinese business. So Mm -hmm. not everybody spoke to me in that. I felt it was actually really important to reflect that in a book. As a journalist, you always feel it's a sort of a a failure Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. I suppose, when people don't talk to you. And then mm-hmm. I realized that's actually part of the story, that mm-hmm. there are so many reasons that people don't want to discuss this. There are so many people who never talk about it even within their own families. Mm. So Mm. it was really important to reflect the silences Mm. as well as the speech. But when it came to interviews, because I was interested in what the Cultural Revolution meant to people, I was led very much by what they wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. to begin with. And then obviously, you dig into that Mm -hmm. and you explore other viewpoints and you ask them perhaps deeper questions. But I wanted to be guided really by the story they wanted to tell because it seemed to me that was really important. Mm -hmm. Why was it that they were choosing Mm -hmm. to remember this? What was it that they were choosing to remember? Mm -hmm. That to me was the key. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted them to sort of set me on the path, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And then of course we explored it. And in in most cases, I was able to meet them multiple times Mm -hmm. and of course, as you speak to somebody the sixth or seventh time, you get perhaps a different perspective that you didn't get on previous occasions. Mm-hmm. You've built up trust and people change over mm-hmm. time and their perspectives mm-hmm. change. And that's one of the interesting things too. What do you think of Western interpretations of the cultural revolution? What are some of the gaps that you see common misinterpretations and how do they apply to the Cultural Revolution specifically in China more widely? Where where do you see, for example, diplomats from the West and not grasping certain elements of, of this specific piece of Chinese history? I think at the general level, there's mm-hmm. just remarkable ignorance about it. Mm-hmm. It's really striking how often you'll see sort of a headline like, you know, a new cultural revolution <laughs> on a story about China. The most glaring <laughs> example, perhaps, is when um, Michael Gove, who was then mm-hmm. education secretary, wrote an opinion piece which said, we need a cultural revolution in our universities <laughs> like China has had. <laughs> Now, I mean, he was referring to sort of the modernization, but I thought the fact that you could evoke Mm. that image and it would not occur to you Mm. that you're actually talking about Mm. thousands Mm. of scholars and academics Mm. being murdered, Mm. humiliated, you know, universities closed for Mm. years. Mm. I mean, that to me, I think sort of reflected Mm. the level of ignorance Mm. around it. And also, I think sort of people think of it very often, something I've seen perhaps more recently when people have used it as an analogy is that they think it's about young left-wing people getting very carried away, mm-hmm. which is just such a fundamental misunderstanding of this mm-hmm. deeply mm-hmm. political movement, a movement that came from the very, very top. Mm-hmm. So I think in recent times, that's been the one that's struck me as perhaps being the the biggest misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And then I think finally, the fact that people see it as a freakish event that could only happen in China. Mm-hmm. And I I think, obviously, all historical events occur within a particular place and mm-hmm. time, and those are the things that shape them. So it's clearly true that the Cultural Revolution in the form it happened couldn't have happened at in another place or in another time in, in quite the same way. But I think the fundamentals that drove it are things that are deeply recognisable, mm-hmm. And I think particularly at a moment where, you know, we have seen how you can have a political demagogue mm-hmm. who trades on hate. Mm-hmm. Adam Serwer famously said of Trump that, you know, the cruelty is the point mm-hmm. in terms of how he whips people up, that he builds on divisions. Mm-hmm. You know, I was looking at Mao's famous saying, who are our enemies, who are our friends? This is the most important question of the revolution. And mm-hmm. I thought, it seems to me such a sort of deeply Trumpian conception mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. And then to see the way that someone can use that to whip up a crowd, to mm-hmm. exploit the masses, to turn on other people, turn against institutions. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that seems so recognizable to mm-hmm. me. So I think the complacency or, or the straightforward racism in thinking mm-hmm. this is a China story as mm-hmm. opposed to a human story, perhaps, is the other great misapprehension. So interesting. There's a joke, I think you mentioned in the book, uh, in paraphrase, it says, spend a month in China, you can write a book, a year, an essay, five years, maybe a sentence. So if you wanted to communicate in a single sentence, the idea of red memory, what would be the most important thing for them to know? Be careful. (laughs) See the above about Trump, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you working on any other projects at the moment? Or do you have any other books in the pipeline? Or Right now, the day job is keeping mm-hmm. me pretty busy, as you can imagine. Um, and, and what sort of stories are you focusing on there? So I write foreign policy editorials mm-hmm. for The mm-hmm. Guardian. And uh, with the world in the state it is, that's... Keeps you very busy, yes. I'm sure. We're going to go to our quick question section where we just find out about your tastes and recommendations. And the first question is, uh, what's your favorite book that I've probably never heard of? Have you heard of The Memory Police? I have not, no. Okay, Yoko Ogawa, and it's great, particularly for anyone Mm -hmm. interested in themes of memory. She writes about a world in which people are obliged to forget. Mm -hmm. We don't know why they're obliged to forget certain Mm -hmm. things, but they are, and then they even have to forget that they've forgotten, Mm -hmm. so to speak, and this is enforced by the memory police of the title. Mm -hmm. It came out in Japan quite a long time ago. It was released in English Mm -hmm. um, much more recently, and so a lot of people, I think, read it very much as a political Mm -hmm. allegory Mm -hmm. in the sort of era of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. It it clearly is in some senses, but it's a a wonderful book on so many levels because it's also about creativity. It's Mm -hmm. about aging life itself, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful and extraordinarily concisely written. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a long book, but very, very powerful. She writes wonderfully about memory. She has another great book, which is The Housekeeper and the Professor, which mm-hmm. is a woman working with this scholar who mm-hmm. only has a 15-minute memory now. And again, it oh, raises wow. these profound questions about mm-hmm. who we are and the extent mm-hmm. to which memory really is mm-hmm. identity. What What is there of us beyond our memories, I mm-hmm. suppose. Well, thank you for that recommendation. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? So I thought one of the most powerful books I've read in the last year was Waiting to be Arrested at Night Mm -hmm. by Tahir Hamut Izgil, Mm -hmm. which is a poet's account of living in Xinjiang as a Uyghur Mm -hmm. uh, through everything that's happened Mm -hmm. over the last few years. One of the things that's most striking about it, I think, is that sense that for those of us living outside, it was very clouded. It was There were so many controls mm-hmm. on information mm-hmm. um, at a point where we think around a million Uyghurs were held mm-hmm. in detention camps without due process mm-hmm. on the most arbitrary grounds. We had so little information coming out. And what's apparent when you read it is actually how little they knew as well about what was happening and what was coming. And so you have this gathering sense of dread, but you realize when you're living in a place, those questions about, do you stay or do you try to go? What's Mm. going to happen to you? What can you do to protect your family? Mm. People are working blind Mm. a lot of the time. Mm. And then I think the other thing that's very potent about it is actually the fact that 
we know, as I said, about these terrible detentions. Mm -hmm. We have heard of the terrible abuses and torture that have taken place in camps. Uh, of course, the Chinese government called them re-education mm -hmm. centers mm -hmm. and people were taken on these tours where you'd see Uyghurs singing and dancing and singing if you're happy and you know it mm -hmm. uh, for their sort of foreign visitors mm -hmm. and so forth. But the accounts, of course, that we've heard from mm -hmm. people who were within the camps mm -hmm. and those who've been in touch with them subsequently are uh, so horrifying yeah. in contrast because the author escapes. Mm -hmm. He doesn't encounter that uh, specifically, but I think in a sense that actually allows us to realize that as outsiders and as, as journalists, it's very easy to see the worst things, the most terrible things mm -hmm. as being perhaps almost the most important mm -hmm. things about that experience. But you realize that just to live with this sense of dread, mm -hmm. to never know if it's going to be you who gets the knock upon the door, mm -hmm. it is the waiting. And the uncertainty of they could come or they could imprison me for 10 or 20 or, you know. Yeah. Not knowing what's going to happen to you, mm -hmm. not knowing what's going to happen to your children is so profoundly damaging. I mean, it was one of the things I thought about when I wrote Red Memory, that I didn't just want to write about the worst things that happened because mm -hmm. there were more terrible things I could have written about, to be blunt. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to write about what the experience of living through does to people mm -hmm. in the long term. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me quite reminiscent of, there's a, a wonderful novel by um, Hertha Muller, The Appointment, where mm -hmm. it's just a woman on the way to this appointment with the secret police mm -hmm. and everything that's going through her head. What that authoritarian control mm -hmm. does to people, mm -hmm. regardless of whether they are in the end arrested. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll be the ones who aren't tortured. Maybe mm -hmm. their kids will be the ones who are okay. Mm -hmm. But living mm -hmm. in that state of uncertainty and living with what's happening to other people, with friends, with relatives, is such a punishing mm -hmm. and damaging and destructive Absolutely. thing. What single book would you take to a desert island? The temptation is always to take something really long, isn't it? Sort of go, go back and reread Proust because yeah, yeah, you think that's going to keep you occupied. I actually thought I would love to take the short stories of Chekhov because he is such an incredible writer. Mm -hmm. And I think I could spend the rest of my life just rereading his mm -hmm. stories and so being many struck and again by his insights and just the extraordinary brevity, like how mm -hmm. he does it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very tight. So. It's just wonderful. I mean, uh, there's certain stories like Gooseberry's that I've just read so many times and you think you can't get any more out of it. And then I was reading George Sanders in uh, ah, Saunders in Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Yeah. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. all of a sudden these fresh vistas opened up to me. So yes, check off short stories. Yeah, fantastic. Great choice. And finally, last question for today, what book changed your mind? Perhaps because I always feel I sort of exist in a state of uncertainty. Uh, I'm always, I feel I'm always quite ready to have my mind mm -hmm. changed on things, I mm -hmm. hope. What I found very enlightening was actually reading a book by Heidi Larson on vaccination, mm -hmm. the name of which has temporarily eluded me. And she talks about how you tackle vaccine hesitancy, mm -hmm. essentially. One of the most fascinating things in there was where she talks about uh, Russian disinformation mm -hmm. efforts and the fact that they didn't just magnify anti-vax voices, as you might have thought, mm -hmm. but they would also amplify the most strongly pro-vax voices. <laughs> and as somebody who's very pro-vax, mm -hmm. um, 
I've always been aware that sort of telling people that they're stupid is generally not a very good strategy mm -hmm. if you want to mm -hmm. change people's minds as well as not being very respectful, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it did make me think about the way that we communicate, the way that we amplify and, mm -hmm. and the role that we all have to play. And that very difficult balance in trying to speak the truth and speak it clearly mm -hmm. and not obfuscate. Mm -hmm but yet do it in a way that hears other people and allows you to be heard by them. Tanya Brannigan, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for speaking with me about your book, Red Memory, on uh, the cultural revolution and its effects in contemporary China. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. During the interview, Tanya mentioned Sparks by Ian Johnson, published in 2023. It's a work of nonfiction which follows counter-historians documenting contemporary China and thereby challenging the government's censoring monopolization of the nation's history. Her favorite book that I'd never heard of was The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa, published in 1994. It's a dystopian tale in which a totalitarian regime controls collective memory, and an unnamed protagonist grapples with the disappearance of memories and objects under the ominous oversight of the memory police. Also by that author was the book The Housekeeper and the Professor, published in 2003, Set in contemporary Japan, it follows an aging mathematician whose memory, after a traffic accident in his younger years, is limited to 80 minutes. The best book that she's read in the last 12 months was Waiting to be Arrested at Night by Tahir Hamut Izgil, published in 2023. It's a Uyghur poet's memoir of China's genocide of the majority Muslim population in Xinjiang province in northwestern China. This is an ongoing genocide which sadly gets far too little press. This also reminded her of another favorite with similar undertones, called The Appointment by the Romanian author Hertha Müller, published in 1997, which follows the life of a young woman living under a communist regime, grappling with her survival in a society marked by political oppression and pervasive surveillance. The book she would take to a desert island is the collected short stories of Anton Chekhov. A particular favorite story she mentioned was Gooseberries, which is from 1898. On that note, she also mentioned the fantastic book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders, published in 2021, in which the author, who's a master short story writer, examines four classic Russian short stories, including one by Chekhov, and dissects them and shares his expert views about them in his inimitable and humorous style. Finally, a book that changed her mind was Heidi Larson's book, Stuck, published in 2020, which explores vaccine rumors, their beginnings, and why they persist in spite of all scientific evidence, and how best to deal with people who have different opinions on that subject. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account, at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.